This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books German Studies and New Books History today with our guest, Jeremy Best, who will be talking to us, with us, about his book, just out with University of Toronto Press 2021, called Heavenly Fatherland, German Missionary Culture in the Age of Empire. Welcome, Jeremy, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I'm so excited to to talk to you and talk about my work. So a little bit about Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Best is an assistant professor of modern Europe at Iowa State University with a specific interest in the cultural history of Germany during the 19th and 20th centuries. He earned his PhD from the University of Maryland, College Park. The book we'll be talking about today was published by Toronto Press 2021, and his work has also appeared in Central European History and edited collections on the history of missionaries. His research has received support from the German-American Fulbright Commission, the German Historical Institute, and the Center for Excellence in the Arts and Humanities at Iowa State University. In addition to his academic work, Professor Best has worked as a public-facing historian, publishing in the History News Network and Perspectives on History. And we'll be talking about his uh, newest projects a little bit later on in the podcast. But I first want to get to the magnum opus here today, his first book publication, and start with my questions. So, Jeremy, what motivated you to get started on this topic? Uh, that's that's a good question. I think uh, I was I was particularly interested in 19th century German history and a little bit of the the cliche of this sort of when you're when you're a young historian, this cliche of the the high art and culture of Germany of Goethe and Schiller and Brecht paired with the this the horrible racism and violence of the Third Reich. Uh, and in looking at that, I, I found myself particularly interested in the 19th century imperial moment, which when I was an undergrad in the 90s and early 2000s, was sort of starting to be looked at again and, and coming uh, into the field a bit more. But there, there really looked like there were some places to make a contribution. As, as I started doing complementary work on, on the wider history of imperialism and colonialism, it became very clear that, that there was a lot of work on British missionary history and a decent amount on American missionary history. But the German missionary history was, was pretty absent, especially in English. And so as I started to look at that, it became clear to me that this is a, a really large movement. Uh, in in the global context before the First World War, they're the they're the third largest mission nation as they as they describe themselves, and uh, a really significant history of of engagement with with the wider world that that predated the formal German Empire. And so, mm-hmm. as I you you start to discover these gaps in in the historiography, uh, you start to think about how to how to attack those gaps and where you can make a contribution. And that was that was where this started for me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I definitely see your book as, as an intervention, um, first and foremost, in, in the, the big questions of German history. So I, I wonder if you might talk about that. There are classic questions about change and continuity or, or rupture. There are questions about German colonialism and, and imperialism and the historical strike. So if we start there with the old straw man of the Zonderweg, what what sort of big questions do you think you're engaging with in your book? Sure, uh, Stephen. I think generally in German history, the, the perspective is that the, the Zonderweg debate was kind of settled a few decades ago. But what I, what I observed in the historiography around the German empire was that it was sort of cropping up, the German colonial empire, sort of cropping up again in this sort of alternative Zonderweg in, in works uh, on the, the, particularly on the, the genocide in what was the colony of German Southwest Africa against the Herero and Namaqua peoples. And that absolutely is an important history to understand and to, to see how there, what, if any continuity there might be between genocide in the colonial empire and the later genocide in, in Germany and in Europe. But what I, what I found lacking in that was that without taking away anything from the uniqueness and the important uh, emphasis that needs to be placed on the events in German Southwest Africa, to my view, it fits into a much wider narrative of European colonial genocides and, and Western colonial genocides. Uh, we can include the American-Philippines War. We can include uh, the, the French in the Upper Volta during World War I as examples of this, that that. Once again, we see Germany being uh, identified as as standing sort of outside of the so-called uh, main narrative of history, and uh, in, when in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence that it was not. And when you look at the missionaries, especially who are this really important colonial interest group in Germany, when you start to dig into their ideology and what they think about uh, the world and how they view race, it becomes really untenable. Uh, to hold on to any any narrative that suggests that there's a very specific German kind of of racial colonialism that that indicates a, a clear a continuity across uh, the the decades between 1900 mm-hmm. and 1945. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so um, I guess from start to finish, where did you go in your travels and in gathering your sources? Sure. So initially you get this, this period where you're kind of in a holding pattern waiting to go to Europe <laughs> to do your research. Um, but then uh, initially I worked in the, the, the German colonial archives at the Bundesarchiv in Lichterfeld outside of Berlin. Uh, there's also a very important and very useful uh, central archive of the evangelical church in Berlin, as, long, as well as a Berlin mission archive library. Uh, these two institutions uh, have, a, have a lot of resources, particularly related to the Berlin Mission Society, which was an important uh, mission society in, in my work. Uh, from there, I, I had to visit the archive in Halle uh, at the Frankische Stiftungen, uh, where the Leipzig Mission archives have been collected. Uh, that uh, was an interesting trip. Halle is a, a really interesting town. The most interesting place I went to was, was Herrenhut which is way down in what's what's called the Land Dreieck in the, the corner or, where Germany meets uh, the Czech Republic and Poland. Uh, it's a tiny town of a couple thousand, and that's where the, the, unity arch- uni- the unity archive of the Moravian church is. 
uh, and where the, the Moravian missionaries records are. It's, it's a, a fabulous little town and about as far away from anything in, in Germany that I've ever been to. Uh, yeah, and, and you went to Poland as well, did you yeah, not? Yeah, I did. So, so uh, that was that was later. And I, I, I uh, before I went to Poland, I went to the record, the archives in in Bielefeld of the Betel Mission, as well as the Wuppertal records uh, there. But in Poland, I went on a trip because I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book, and one of the most important ones for explaining why missionaries indicate, if you will, a a discontinuity across. Uh, World War One in the 1920s was uh, to try and track down records of uh, what were called Mission Missions Hilfsverein. Uh, these were mission aid societies. They were scattered all across Protestant Germany, uh, particularly for the Berlin Mission Society. They were all across Prussia and the various provinces of Prussia. Uh, and so I, I visited uh, local regional archives of uh, the Polish state archives trying to track down records of these Missionshilfsvereine. Because as, as all of, almost all of your listeners will know, uh, the region I was visiting, which is uh, from Posen up into Pomerania and down into Silesia, that region after World War II is, uh, is sort of taken from Germany and given to Poland. The Germans are forcibly and willingly removed, uh, and then Polish people are resettled there. And it's an open question to me that I, I don't know what the, the, the provenance of these records are, but in many cases, the records would have been in a, in a local church uh, mm-hmm. or in the local Protestant uh, church administrative uh, locations. And I cannot imagine that any, uh, any Polish person relocated there uh, had any interest in preserving those records. Right. Uh, so I, I was curious. a bit of a... Yeah. It's, it was a bit of a... a, a um, I guess, uh, uh, what's the metaphor? I guess I was looking for a needle in a haystack or maybe even less than that. Uh, not even certain there was a needle in the haystack, um, visiting archives. And I was able to find in these archives, uh, a certain amount of government records. You would sometimes find the, uh, the government gazette from, uh, that period or, uh, just sort of stray files. Uh, but when I, when I partnered that kind of record searching with the records held back at the Berlin mission society archives in Berlin, I was able to reconstruct this incredibly extensive network of mission fundraising, but also mission, uh, what I guess we might call propaganda uh, or preaching, where the mission societies saw it not at, that these missions Hilfsvereine were not just for fundraising, although that was important. They were also for missionizing, if you will, to uh, to the Germans about the vision that missionaries had of the world, that teaching these Germans about uh, about the, in, in the case of my work, but also uh, others' works about the African peoples and the Chinese communities that the missionaries were working with and meeting with and the Christianity that they thought they were building there and teaching the Germans that those are their religious brothers and sisters. And so you have these mission fests that will be attended by hundreds of people, thousands of people sometimes held during the summer. You have uh, weekly or monthly mission study nights where the missionaries build on a, a, a pietist tradition of, of study circles. And they say, well, you're going to study our journals and our pamphlets and get together and talk about it. You have traveling uh, presentations by missionaries who come home on uh, recuperation trips. The Thanks to the, the steamship, the late 19th century missionaries get to do something that the earlier missionaries never did, which was come home from time to time. And they would come home for sort of semi-mandated vacations, if you will, but they weren't 
really on vacation because they'd be sent around right. to uh, proselytize and to talk about the work and to fundraise. Uh, but, and I think it was pretty accurate, the the climate in Germany was healthier for these missionaries, so they did often find themselves um, rejuvenated. Well, that, that's that's definitely what I want to talk about and, and ask you about, because there's this phrase, Miss, Missionswissenschaft, that you yep. describe, and, and it, it's hard to translate, I would admit. It, <laughs> Absolutely. Mission, missionology or mission studies is a pretty loose translation, but you start with it in, in your first chapter. And um, I think in many ways, uh, in designing your six chapters, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're laying out a, a pluralism for um, colonialisms. I mean, it, what you're talking about is mission policy as, as it um, compares with British mission policy in relation to the, the economic colonial state. Um, how do you begin to lay out your argument in, in these chapters, starting with Missionswissenschaft? Sure. And I, I first let me comment to your point about this these multiple colonialisms. I think that uh, this is an intervention that I'm contributing to, is to really think about there is absolutely a, a global universal Western project of imperialism in the late 19th century that everyone involved thought they were part of. They all thought that they were in some way part of the spreading of uh, so-called civilization, that there was some civilizing mission that everyone thought they were part of, I think. And I, and I think that that's important to understand, but, but that is too, too simple by half. And it's, it's really important to understand that within that, there are these multiple colonialisms. As you point out, there's a British colonialism, there's a French colonialism, there's an American colonialism, there's a German colonialism. And that's not to say that these are somehow... Um, uh, closed, closed examples that that have no crossover. But just to say that there are there are varieties within this, and there was a missionary colonialism. And if we want to get really granular, and it kind of gets out of hand, but you could say there was a German missionary colonialism, and that's that's actually to 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 walk that back a bit. That's what I think I'm arguing. And yeah, so in the in the first chapter, uh, I argue I present this Missionswissenschaft, which you're right. It's challenging to translate to English as as many of uh, your listeners, our listeners who are experts in German history and German studies will know uh, that word kind of translates as science, kind of translates as studies. Missiology is is very commonly a, a translation, but the, the German version of it was, was particularly expansive in its inclusion of what kinds of knowledge were relevant. Uh, Gustav Warneck, the, the important founder of this study with some other colleagues and, and a leading Missionswissenschaftler, for his in, entire career through the 1870s up until his death in 1910, argued that the whole point of it was to integrate with the, the apostolic goal of converting non-Christians to Christians was to integrate into that religiously inspired mission, a almost rationalist recognition of the value of, uh, of scientific knowledge, of ethnological knowledge, of uh, agronomy, you know, that he said, look, we even need to be thinking about what what kinds of agriculture makes sense within this world of mission work? And because so, yeah. because they, they because they belong to the communities ultimately, exactly. right? So I mean, I, I wonder if you could describe that, especially through your early early chapters, but even you know later on when they're building churches and and advocating for indigenous knowledge and and for and for um, let's say um, native language study. Yeah. Uh, not just of the Bible, but of, of other things within the communities of, of East Africa as you explore. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I discovered in my research as I was 
it really, you, you find this corpus of knowledge that I didn't know anything about, this Missionswissenschaft, and you find it and you discover that it, it produced massive amounts of literature and you start drilling into it, metaphorically speaking, you're finding more and more their themes. And one of the themes was this principle that the, the best policy of mission work, and so that was the, the ultimate goal of Missionswissenschaft was to develop the best way to make non-Christians into Christians was, at least from the German perspective, to to recognize and respect as much of the local, indigenous, non-Christian culture as they could. And for one way to think about this is that they imagined that if they could sort of, they had sort of like a, 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 a vertically organized sense of, of culture and society, and they put religious belief at the top of that, and they they imagined if they could they could slice off from a given African community or uh, Latin American community or Native American community, if they could slice that off and remove what they called superstition and sinful practices, slice that off and then plop their version of Christianity on top, that they could then leave alone everything else, and so they could leave alone the language, they could leave alone. Uh, certain food cultures, they could leave alone, uh, maybe even certain elements of, of marriage practice or labor practice. And mm-hmm. in this, they, they came through, they came to this and this helped sort of stimulate an internationalist view and a uh, maybe cosmopolitan or to use a, a 21st century word, an inclusive relationship to Christianity. And that they, they thought that if they could preserve the local previously non-Christian culture and build a new culture, a new, what they call a new Volkskirche, a, a church of the people, that they would be enriching and extending the, the worth, the value, the glory of the Christian church. They always said Christian, but they, they mostly meant Protestant. They're, they're pretty ambivalent about whether Catholics uh, are Christian enough to be part of yeah, the new let's, new world they're making? Let's talk, let's talk about that too. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole separate yeah. issue. That is another chapter where, and, and you know that chapter. I have a chapter about this this major conflict in German East Africa around uh, land, around where mission stations can be built, which is a place where, while I, I I think it's it's safe to argue that the Protestant missionaries from Germany were uh, pretty ambivalent about national loyalty, pretty disinterested in serving the German Empire, mm-hmm. which is a contrast to how British missionaries are often presented and, and a lot of the evidence of what they were up to. But right. they are imperfect. And uh, when they run into this territorial conflict with Catholic mission societies in German East Africa, they fall back on nationalist arguments. They fall back. They become suddenly their, their culture comp for all over again. The Catholics are not sufficiently German. They're overly internationalist. They don't respect uh, the values of the German state uh, as as a tool to to win this argument about territory in yeah. what was in what was called the Benedictiner Strait. And uh, and and let, let's let's come to that a little bit later on, yeah, Jeremy. I, because I, I wanted to ask a, a big question, and and again, you know, reflecting from your source work in the mission archives or the mission societies. So if we line up the colonial society, let's say, and those who are advocates of, of German militarism and, and German military armament, especially from the 1880s forward. How, I mean, 
how do your culture trigger, let's say these these men like yeah. Varnak, appear? Are are they are they nationalist? Are they peace loving? Um, do they actually you know understand and respect African agency, or, or are they just sort of there as you know another crop of, of European colonial settlers? Uh, that's that's an excellent question. Uh, so in terms of nationalist. Uh, they are, uh, there's, especially the, the group that sort of establishes Missionswissenschaft and creates what uh, can be sort of thought of as the modern German mission movement around the 1860s and 1870s. This is Gustav Farnecht, um, Franz Michael Zahn, who is the, the director of the North German Mission Society. It's worth noting that Gustav Farnecht wanted to be a missionary, but never got to be a missionary because he had a, some sort of lung uh, disorder or lung complaint. Uh, and so was a, a parish uh, cleric for a long time. But on his on the side, he developed an entire <laughs> discipline um, with with the support of others. Um, and only after about twenty years did he enter into academia, the uh, formal academia. The so Franz Michael Zahn, uh, other important figures appear in the book. But these these men came of age and developed a German mission movement. Protestant mission movement that there was no German nation or no unified German empire. There was no German colonial presence uh, worthy of their attention in their view. Uh, and so in that context, it was very easy for them to be internationalist and to think about themselves as transcending borders and working in other countries' empires and serving, uh, as my title suggests it, the, a heavenly fatherland rather than a German fatherland. And they that uh, led to a, a, a Missionswissenschaft completely colored with a narrative that that the mission societies and their activities should be internationalists, autonomous, and independent. That they should be completely free agents, whatever they wanted to do. And this was reinforced by a, a, a theological or or scriptural argument that that the work of God is preeminent over all other things. Mm-hmm. And so these guys are pretty anti-nationalist. They, they don't deny their, their German cultural heritage. And in fact, some of that cultural heritage comes through in, in fact, this emphasis on uh, indigenous language rather than German language instruction. Uh, and I argue that it comes out because of, uh, you know, this, this Herderian and this, this German definition of nationhood and identity is being derived from language rather than political structures. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, uh, and, and and I wonder if you could give for our listeners some some examples of this indigeneity or I mean I guess it's another word that's very difficult to translate. Mm-hmm. I'm, th- I'm thinking Eingeborenen Politik, which is another you know sort of like native native policy. But I, I mean, can you give examples of what some of these Protestant and, and maybe also Catholic missionaries um, do in order to develop, um, let's say, knowledge at at the, the sure. base 
level in, in some of the different locations that you're exploring in, in German East Africa? Yeah, sure. So, uh, of course, by the 1860s and 70s, the, the German mission movement has at least some working knowledge of many of the places they're going to go. But German East Africa was not a place where very many European missionaries were active to this point. Uh, so when in a sort of compromise with pressure from German nationalists, they agree to start setting up mission stations in German East Africa, they are going in with very little language of local, sorry, very little knowledge of local languages or local cultures. But through this, this Missionswissenschaftliche sort of system and through the past experiences missionaries, they do have a plan. And when a missionary or a couple of missionaries arrive in a new mission field, they're expected to do essentially two things. One thing is to build something that will be a church, a building, and the other is to build something that will be a school. And in that first couple years of their presence, the expectation is that they are doing everything they can to learn the local language. Whatever language that is, there is, as, uh, as many scholars have pointed out, there's a whole lot of um, colonial work that goes in, in or colonization that happens in the choosing of a language. Uh, missionaries are operating with a incomplete knowledge of local cultural uh, practices, power dynamics. They're often at the mercy of their uh, translators that they have, their, their indigenous assistants. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they identify some language uh, or dialect of a given language and start learning that. As they learn that, the goal is to be able to teach and preach in that language and for the Protestants especially to translate the Bible. And the first thing they want to translate is the Gospels for the obvious reason that the whole point of, of Christianity is the, the story of, of Jesus. Uh, then they'll eventually work their way through the entire New Testament and, and then eventually the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible to be more accurate. So the the that's part of the project and that emphasis on indigenous language leads to them in their uh, elementary schools or grammar schools, which they kind of tried to run schools that ran all the way up till fifth or eighth grade, more or less, that the emphasis would be on instruction in, in whatever the, the local language was that had been identified and selected. Mm -hmm. The, the, there is very little impetus coming from the missionaries themselves to teach most of these uh, children German. The that's interesting. That, that's a really interesting point. I, that's surprising to me. It yeah. is there. So the there's a couple things going on, and, and this goes back to what I sort of alluded to: is that I don't want to present these missionaries as sort of pure, right? They are caught yeah. in between, and one of the, one of the reasons mm -hmm. is this. Uh, there is a certain amount of cultural supremacy, a certain sense that it's far worse. And this is some of their racialized thing is far worse that, that a uh, African in the case of, of my, I feel if we want to call them case studies for the activities of the missionaries, the, that an African uh, be a, a imitator or unable, uh, sort of a poor facsimile of a white person that they, that they speak pigeon German or that they dress uh outside of their, they dress in, in Western clothes. And that comes from two places. It comes from the, the general colonialist disdain for, uh, for the supposed imitation and the inadequacy of these imitations. But it also comes from this notion of cultural uh, relativism or cultural inclusivity is that, that, that those, 
that African man or woman who is uh, doing a poor imitation of, of a German man or woman is uh, actually demeaning themselves and, and disconnecting themselves from their, their place in the world. But so that's one part of it. And that's the sort of uh, the, the part that I feel comfortable judging in a pretty negative way um, from our 21st century viewpoint. The other reason though, is that they are not interested in transforming those cultures. They are not interested in, in turning these, uh, these folks into, uh, into sort of, uh, Germans of, of a different race, uh, which again is, is really generally not coming from a supremacist position. It is coming from a, our work is to make Christians. And the best way to make Christians is to reach them in their native language is to reach them in their heart and in their mind and in their soul. And they have this sense that that is the closest connection. Furthermore, if we can preserve these, then at the most extreme sort of theological interpretation, and this is particularly true of, of more of the, the liberal missionaries who, who I don't uh, really study, but, but someone like Albert Wu has working in China is at the most extreme is that, that new knowledge of Christianity can come. That, that God's message is so universal and so complex that Germans are somewhat limited in how they can understand it by their own linguistic experiential limitations. And if you can bring the message to, for example, in an Ungande, that, that Ungande community will uh, build its own understanding and will find new truths and Christianity will become more expansive and powerful. And then they can teach those truths back to the Germans. So there, there's a sense of like, in, in one of my chapters, this, the, 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 that the metaphor of the Tower of Babel, that it was God's intent that all the world be made diverse. Mm -hmm. But then also it was God's intent at, uh, at, at Pentecost, that all of Christianity be brought back together, right? That, that Christianity would learn each other's languages and be able to be understood. Yeah. It, and I think, Jeremy, it's, it's such an interesting intersection of, of Herder and mm -hmm. pietism and Luther and, and German identity. You can trace it back, I think, a very long time. And that's one of my questions for you about the Catholic-Protestant conflict, because, you know, I mean, you mentioned this and, and your research is extensive, the feud that goes on. Um, that the Berlin Mission Society has, especially with, with the Benedictines. Mm -hmm. um, could, could you introduce, let's say, the, the intersection of domestic and foreign relations among Catholics and, and Protestants with the idea of, of what the missions should be, should be doing, what their influence should be, why there's, a, why there's an antagonism, and, and ultimately... Sure. You know how how that message of universal inclusion either becomes more universalized or or let's say collapses into into confession yeah. categories. This was another thing that I came across in the archives. You're 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 moving through the archives. You're seeing a lot of the same stuff, uh, all of it interesting and important, but really contributing to a general sense of what's going on. And then I come across around 1907, 1908, this this word that I'd never seen before. This one of these German compound words, the Benedictiner Streit, which I understood as, you know, the strite or conflict or, or fight. And I knew the Benedictiners as a, as the, the main Catholic mission order active in German East Africa. And I, I had come, I had learned a bit about them early in the research for the project. And I thought this would be a, a 
a uh, multi-confessional study that I'd look at the, the Protestants and the Catholics, and then just the, the scope and the, the, the amount of material. And then that the, the two stories diverge a bit. But so, so the Benedictiners were, uh, they had been allowed to enter Germany, East Africa. The, the, the German Catholic Church had, had wanted to get into the mission work game uh, in the same way that the French and the, the Belgian Catholic churches had been very active. Uh, and but this was at the time of the Kulturkampf when when essentially mission orders were prohibited in Germany, and as part of the compromise that is agreed to to both establish the German Empire and also to end the Kulturkampf, the over in the aftermath of that, there's an agreement to allow a German mission society fi- be founded. And that's the the Benedictiners of of Sankt Tilian, based out of uh, uh, out of Bavaria. And one of the requirements of this mission society, this this new order, was that all of its monks must be German, that that they could not be from any other country, which was not the way it was in most other mission societies. Germans had been working uh, for for various other mission societies based out of France and Belgium and the Netherlands, and that was a requirement. There are other requirements that they could that they they had to work only in German colonies. Uh, so they are from the beginning. Uh, made uh, made linked, or are, they are linked to the German state and colonial power. Nevertheless, they are part of the the Catholic mission movement, so they are under the authority of the Propaganda Fide in Rome, mm-hmm. uh, and they are so so they are sort of in this in between where they are autonomous and international, like the Protestants want to be. But they are also in this very specific case of the Benedictines of Sancta Tillian that they are uh, beholden to the German state in ways that the Protestant missions aren't because the Protestant missions have a lot more political power to do what they want. In what I find, uh, some of this is from the reporting by the Protestant missions, but it's borne out by uh, evidence elsewhere that the, this Catholic order, I argue, ends up being much more nationalist than the German Protestant missions do. That this effect of having them, making sure that they're all German, making them be linked to the German state and the German colonial state in Germany, East Africa, means that they are far more willing to cooperate and accommodate the requests of the uh, colonial empire. And And, so they are, go ahead, Stephen. I'm just curious because it does that, sorry to interrupt you, but does that reflect the Kaiserreich's politics as well? So the center party and you know, sort of the, the general antagonism toward um, toward the socialists and social de- social democrats. I mean, how, how does that play out then in the so, colonial space? Yeah, it plays out in sorry, it plays out in certain ways. In that the the center party is sort of the as as you know is sort of the um, they're the keystone party of whatever is going to happen in the Reichstag in Germany, and whichever way they go, and if the if the colonial if the the um, Kaiser's government can get them to accommodate their goals, then things will go forward. And so they're a key constituency in terms of the colonial empire as well. Uh, what it plays out as is that in the, so that's sort of going on, this sort of political dynamic of the Catholics being the, uh, to some extent, the so-called enemy of the empire, but also very integral to its, uh, its colonial plans in, in German East Africa, the there is a, a major uh, uprising 
by uh, multiple African groups called the Maji Maji Uprising that runs uh, through the middle of the first decade of the 20th century. In its eventual suppression, uh, it turns into a, a sort of scorched earth guerrilla campaign. This is the Maji Maji Uprising. Uh, and in its aftermath, we see a German colonial uh, government that is uh, in, a, in a much stronger position in many ways, uh, but also a colony that is depopulated across the southern third of the country. About 100,000 people die in the, the war and its suppression. The, right. uh, the mission societies are both the, the Protestants of the Berlin Mission Society, uh, as well as the Moravians who are operating in the same region of the southern the southern half of the colony and the Benedictines, they are all competing for a, a smaller population. And the, the, the motivation is that you can't make Christians if you don't have non-Christians in your missions. Uh, and the way that that's sort of handled, at least initially, is you carve out a sort of territory. Our mission works in this area with these communities. And there's a sort of informal agreement between the Catholics and the Protestants that exists that the Catholics will operate in this area and the Protestants will operate in this area. But then around 1907-08, the Catholics uh, build a couple mission stations that are just too close to the Protestant field. And the Protestants build a couple and it turns into this, this sort of conflict over territory and this argument over where should uh, where should people be allowed to work. They want the colonial, the Protestants want the colonial government to intervene and draw borders and sort of basically um, facilitate a treaty, if you will. Uh, and one of the, why the Protestants really want this is because their missionizing work takes longer than the Catholics missionizing work does. The Catholics generally are pretty quick to baptize people and declare people full members of the Christian community, while the Protestants are are slower. I mean, they, they want to insist on a familiarity with with the catechism and they go through confirmation processes. And so they work slower and their numbers uh, go slower. So they're really afraid that if it's sort of like a free market competition, they will lose. So uh, Jeremy, toward the end of the book, you make an argument about globalism and globalization and, and some of the anxieties about uh, the mission society is both at an individual level and, and in terms of the group. So I'm wondering what happens to um, your theologians who once upon a time um, believed that they could stay out of politics. And I mean, how, how does their work and, and let's say their uh, understanding of, of this global moment for, for Christian universalism change? Yeah, there's a really interesting thing that happens after about 1900. The, this, this drumbeat, this confident internationalism remains strong and it remains the the overriding position and message of the German mission societies, but it is undeniable for them that after 1900, globalization is, is really, uh, it, it is a force that everyone is aware of. And the missionaries are aware that, that particularly in Germany, this has led to a, a, a stronger force pushing for the creation of a of a stronger German global global presence in the in the Weltpolitik policies of Kaiser Wilhelm and his chancellors, and you see this at various moments where Varneck sort of modifies his views and says we have to acknowledge that we are going to be more and more in uh, relationship with the colonial state that the colonial state is becoming larger and more powerful and we need to f- figure out how to 
negotiate that relationship. The other thing that's interesting that happens is that a new, a second generation of colonial leaders, or sorry, missionary leaders comes, uh, two men, particularly Karl Oxenfeld and Julius Richter, both of whom, Karl Oxenfeld, much more of a uh, sort of missionary administrator and and thinker in, in sort of political ways in that way, and Julius Richter, who is also a thinker in political ways, but is much more of a Missionswissenschaftler, and I identify him as sort of the inheritor of Varneck's position in time. And these two men, along with a, a whole generation uh, of, of missionaries and missionary-involved individuals, uh, they don't have the same ambivalent relationship to the German state. They come of age after the empire has been united. They come of age during the imperial period and the colonial period. And so they are, while still committed to the globalist, internationalist, universalist message of the mission movement, they are nevertheless a little more amenable to recognizing their Germanness and working within their Germanness. Uh, so they're becoming more and more influential. So that's happening. So we've got these, that's two things, right? You have expanding globalization. You have this new generation of leaders who are definitely committed to universal mission project, but are a little more open to, well, maybe our Germanness can still be part of this. Then the third thing that's happening is that this, a project that the German missionaries have been pushing for, for 30, 40 years, the creation of some kind of international alliance or consortium of missions, particularly with the British and the American mission societies who are seen as, as incredibly valuable allies because they're bigger and wealthier. They have a broader range. Uh, the Germans think they can offer this Missionswissenschaft knowledge and this, this practical technical knowledge and being the third largest. And, and then also an Axenfeld will argue because Germany is a powerful country, German mission must be acknowledged. So you yeah. see that kind of that slippage. That yeah. culminates in 1910 in Edinburgh right. when the World Just, Missionary Conference meets. What what was that conference and why was it so so significant? You write sure. a lot. So the- this was a uh, conference organized at the initial impetus of uh, the British mission societies, particularly uh, around this notion coming from uh, America and Britain that the, the time had come that you could you could evangelize the whole world in uh, in a generation. And the 1910 Missions uh, World Mission Conference was had there had been previous ones, and there was one in 1900 in New York, 1888 in London, and this was meant to be a continuation of an effort to bind together global Protestant mission. And what happens there is that a, a, there's a huge planning for this. They produce reports where they gather data from all across the mission world. They present those. There are massive conversations and debates about what to do. And what's important about 1910 is that it's the, well, there's two things. One, it's the first of these that really satisfies the Germans' expectations that these gatherings be strategic, that they be about creating a a global plan to confront the the major opponents or enemies of mission, uh, not just heathendom, but but Islam and Catholicism and uh, mercantilism and and capitalism and its and its bad behaviors, and that it that it be a gathering whereby some international collaboration could be built. The second, so that that's important because the Germans are the ones who sort of originate the idea for how it's organized, and it comes into comes to play. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's important about it is that out of it they organize and form what's called the Continuation Committee, which is a organization meant to plan a 1920 
World Mission Conference. That's its main purpose, that, thus the continuation. But in the interim 10 years, it's also expected to promote and pursue greater cooperation. And in that time, it founds a journal, an international mission review. It founds a statistical commission for gathering data, and it starts some baby steps towards advocating for mission societies to colonial governments. Right, right. And this, this fulfills the Germans' dream that they will get a international mission movement, that, this, mm-hmm. that it's not just uh, ideal, it's reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, all of that comes crashing down in World War I. Yeah. And the, the, and it, it does yeah. the pro- does the project end? Would you say, Jeremy? I mean, because one of your yeah. one of your big sort of historiographical interventions and arguments is, you know, a- against a lot of the the um, scholarship in German colonial history about Kolonialgewalt, right, and the mm-hmm. sort of violence, um, drawing that direct line of continuity from policies in in East Africa right through to the Holocaust, and so. I mean, it, it seems like an extraordinarily important moment, both during World War One and then, let's say, after Versailles or, or maybe into 1920. Um, how do you end the story then for the, these Protestant yeah. mission societies? And, you know, what ultimately for our listeners, what, what happens to them? Where, where do they yeah, go? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a little bit, I, I think I owe a, a small apology to uh, the many mission societies that are still active in Germany right now that uh, still do uh, the work, a, a sort of a 21st century version of, of where those mission sites are heading. You know, they operate as almost like NGOs and they, they deliver uh, mm-hmm. services and education uh, in, in developing countries. But nevertheless, I think it is absolutely true that the, this, this forceful, confident uh, network, this globalizing mission movement in Germany of Protestants ends in World War One, as as it is recognizable in my book, that mm-hmm. the the there's there's sort of two things that happen. One is the actual circumstance of the war, which is the blockade, the occupation of the colonies, their conquest, eventually uh, the financial destruction uh, in Germany as a result of the war. All of those things just take all the strength out of the mission movement. Uh, and in the Versailles Treaty, the missionaries are uh, these mission studies are not automatically permitted to return to the what become mandatory territories. Um, they are it, it gives the the authority to the mandatory power to decide. And so these mission studies spend with varying amounts of energy uh, and time the 1920s trying to get back into their mission fields. They uh, are never the same. so that's that's one thing. The second thing that destroys it is that in the war, Oxenfeld and Richter uh, are very much convinced by the behavior as they see it of the British theological establishment and its its patriotic support of the war in Britain. They see this internationalism and the the spirit of Edinburgh, this gathering, as having never really been there, and that it was, that was a dream and a fantasy that uh, was. And it, they kind of it's there's some variants. Some think that it was. Uh, it was sort of a dream that could have happened, but doesn't. Others think it was always just a phantasm, right? It was never really there. The British were never really going to join in. And the Americans, uh, when the Americans joined the war, that is proof. And during the war, the American mission establishment never sort of sides with the Germans in the mission sort of arguments that are happening sort of disjointedly across the battle lines. And so that 
kind of ends it after World War One. You have the continuity of the mission movement is is broken very very heavily, very badly, uh, and a lot of these missionaries uh, turn towards. Uh, they kind of follow that line of part of our mission project is to teach Germans about who they are. Yeah. Uh, all that line to sort of remissionizing Germany and trying to and, restore it. And I, I think that makes them sort of susceptible a bit to uh, the sort of right wing yeah. movements of the that, 1920s. And, and, and that's my question, you know, sort of the last big question for you, Jeremy, and, and you know, to our audience here at New Books Network, the, the big takeaway points that you can draw. I'm, I'm wondering, even as a kind of counter, you know, factual or counter argument, if you were to do this, let's say more from an African perspective and, and say, look, from a post-colonial or subaltern, what, you know, what happens then to those um, stories of the schools and churches and evangelizing and you know, I mean, would also sort of add as a footnote to this, there's a lot of German cultural evangelizing that still goes on. We may not think yeah. of the Goethe Institute as an evangelizing body, um, yeah. let's say, or the German Historical Institute. But it mm-hmm. certainly, I mean, Germans are very, very good often at, at, at spreading cultural missions, although sort of defining it in, in other terms for the 21st century. So I, I'd ask, you know, for your big takeaway yeah. points from the book and in some of the current debates that you might imagine. Sure. So one of the things that this book, I think, can do is indicate the ways there there is a continuity in terms of German uh what we could call, you know, they wouldn't have called it this in the 19th century, but a continuity in terms of German uh, cultural and uh, philanthropic engagement with the world. And the, there has been a lot of debate uh, around sort of Germany's attitude towards the developing world. And, and the fact that Germany supposedly decolonized in World War I has meant that the, the process of acknowledging Germany's ongoing colonial legacy as part of the, the sort of Western world has not really happened in the ways that it, it maybe should have. Uh, and so there is, I think this book helps indicate, okay, if we start thinking about Christian colonialism and what German Christian colonialism looked like, maybe there's a door to trying to understand the work of these mission sites. As I said, they continue uh, afterwards. And in the, you know, for example, the, uh, the unified evangelical mission, the VEM, uh, identifies itself now as a uh, a church in three countries, right? And it talks about how it is, mm. it is not a German mission society, but it is a church in Tanzania, in China, and in Germany. And it's it's sort of unified. And so it tries to destabilize that um, metropolitan colonial relationship, but it's, it's still there. Right. Um, I think one of the interesting things that happens is that the, the German missionaries' message of, of uh, celebrating indigenous – celebrating is not quite the word, but, but um, tolerating or embracing it, – it's somewhere in that continuum of, of indigenous culture leads to – they're sort of ahead of the curve on at least theoretically handing over leadership of churches to uh, local indigenous uh, preachers and so forth. They never really follow through on it, but they have this doctrine of the folk security that you should eventually create an indigenous clergy – and it's in World War One, for example, in East Africa, when the German missionaries are taken away uh, by the British uh, occupying forces, that 
these catechists and teachers assert themselves and preserve the, the, the nascent churches that are being created in these places. And it, and by the time the German missionaries get back or by the time American or British missionaries come in to take over the, it, the, the process of indigenizing or of making their own, these churches, uh, has moved forward at a rapid pace. And so you, one of the legacies is this sort of autonomous Christian, uh, church life comes, comes to be a little bit, maybe a little bit faster. I, I, I sort of, uh, the, the book really does end in, in 1919 and what happens after is, is a little harder to track in the sources. And, that and, and in, and in that case, Jeremy, could you recommend perhaps uh, maybe two or three other books or authors and, and then talk uh, in our last two or three minutes about your current project? Uh, sure. I don't, I don't really have, I'm sorry to say, I don't really have any recommendations for uh, work on, on the post-war post-world war one in, in Germany, East Africa yeah. beyond. Um, so we may want to just not. Yeah. So talk, <laughs> talk, talk about your new toy soldiering project. I'm uh, sure. curious, well, curious me... how you're doing. I'm, I'm, so there's sort of two kinds of books I've been reading lately since I've, I've finished the, the, the project. I mean, one has been sort of, there's been some really interesting work going on on the Weimar Republic. And as I, I to your point about what happens after World War One, I'm more and more interested in that. And so uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I just got it in to read Laurie Marhofer's Sex in the Weimar Republic. Uh, and I'm really excited to read that as well as Molly Loberg's The Struggle for the Streets of Berlin. I think both of those are going to help point me in new directions and, and develop uh, a greater understanding as I, as I think about teaching and, and research. But as for my new project, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the very early stages of a project on the intersection of uh, wargaming, uh, German-American post-World War II relations, and Holocaust memory. Uh, I, there is an interesting way in which the development of both war games for use by the military, but also war games for use by the, for the, by the public as a hobby, uh, interacts with the, uh, I think interacts with the, what we might consider the domestication of the Prussian army, if you will, or of Prussian violence, right. Of the Wehrmacht and that Germany very quickly, right. It's just a matter of years that Germany goes from being sort of a, a terrible villainous military enemy a to a, a very reliable, trustworthy ally in the battle against communism. And yeah. in that time frame, there, there are some arguments, some answers that suggest, well, it's, it's realpolitik. It's, it's uh, the just incredible power of anti-communism. Uh, but I, there's, there's a process there whereby Americans are taught that Germans are not scary. Right. And, and I think some of that comes through in this, the way that we remember World War II. And one of the ways we do in, our, in American culture and, and in other cultures is in war games. And in those war games, what you see without looking too deeply is an incredible absence of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. The, that there is no acknowledgement, as, as we all know more and more, that World War II and the Holocaust are the same, right? That there is no differentiation. And so any game that separates them is engaging in erasure. And so I'm, I'm interested in figuring out what happened in those, those years. Uh, and so that'll be a project on sort of the history of, of war games and both internal to the, the Reichswehr before World War II and then the Wehrmacht and then in the post-war uh, and how that translated to both American military planning, but, but 
really interestingly, I think, to uh, cultural practices. Per- per- perfect, yeah. Jeremy. I knew you were going to be a 20th century historian. I, I, I knew it. I knew you were you were going into the into the other post. I, I feel I feel I feel a real betrayal. I really love the 19th century, and I, I want to go back. But this project came to me right. I I, I uh, as a as a I'm a, a gaming is a hobby, and uh, while I have not been a deep war gamer, some of these games are are very very deep in the hobby, but. I am aware of them and I've played certain numbers of these games in their milder versions and to have the, the opportunity to bring, I think to bring a, uh, the, the, the careful awareness of, of, a, of an enthusiast, if you will, to with the critical and the very critical engagement I have, I am, I am prepared to be told that I'm ruining people's hobby. And, uh, in and which I'm, case you're doing the right thing. Yeah, and I'm prepared to answer them with, you know, I don't think that this needs to ruin the hobby, but we all just need to be more thoughtful about the past. Yeah. And yeah. we need to be more aware of the ways we're, we're living in our lives. You're going to find a lot of sources for that. Jeremy Best, I want to thank you for joining us. The book is called Heavenly Fatherland, German Missionary Culture in the Age of Empire, just out, fresh out 2021 with the University of Toronto Press. Congratulations, Jeremy, and thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Stephen. This was, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I, I Thank you so much. And I'm Stephen Siegel, your host here at New Books Network. Until next time.